0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, we hear from media literacy expert Nolan Higdon about the ongoing manipulation of our basic information – also about the Twitter files, the false Russian narrative weaponized against President Trump, and more. Media literacy is the broad topic today, not fake media literacy efforts at news organizations, academic institutions, and by nonprofits who are actually doing the opposite, telling people things like only believe what you read in the New York Times, for example. But we're talking about true media literacy today, which takes real critical thinking and a bit of your own investigation. Every time you hear the buzzword or catchphrase like media literacy used by the media, it has to be dissected to discern if it really means the opposite. It often does because we are truly living in Orwellian times. Nolan Higdon is an author and university lecturer of history and media studies. His areas of concentration, according to his bio, include podcasting, digital culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. He is the founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. Yes, there is such a thing. And he sits on the boards of the Action Coalition for Media Education and Northwest Alliance for Alternative Media and Education. He is the author of several books. I've interviewed him on Full Measure before. His books are called, some of them, The Anatomy of Fake News. Great book, by the way, subtitled A Critical News Literacy Education. His most recent publications include The Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism, and Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication. Conflict Management and Critical Media Literacy. That book, Let's Agree to Disagree, he co-authored with Mickey Huff, who is another guest of mine on Full Measure, Uh, has great things to say about this topic and many others. Nolan Higdon is a longtime contributor to Project Censored. What a great organization, y'all. Check it out online, Project Censored. Anyway, Higdon is a longtime contributor to the annual book, Censored. This book that's put out by the group every year Looks at the top most censored stories of that year. I have been a big supporter of this group. I wrote the foreword to one of their annual books previously, and I highly recommend checking out their most censored stories. In addition, back to Nolan Higdon, he's been a contributor to Truth Out and Counterpunch and a source of expertise for the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and numerous television outlets. So here we have Nolan Higdon a professor of history and communication at the University of California, Santa Cruz.
2: What would you say your specialty is? What interests you in certain topics?
0: I think that the big umbrella interest is critical media literacy. So I'm always looking at ways to teach people how to interrogate media better and then also hold the media accountable.
2: When we look at the story about Trump-Russia, Trump-Russia collusion, You look back and there was so much misinformation and disinformation there, but I really haven't seen the major news outlets that got it so wrong, nor the federal agencies that went down the wrong path, do any sort of mea culpa and say that they really need to reconfigure what they did or hold people accountable. What is your observation now running a couple of years after that Russiagate operation?
0: And we really don't have an accountability system in our media environments, uh, so you can make mistake after mistake and c- actually usually you rise up um, people like Rachel Maddow cashed in uh, like $30 million contracts for being w- wrong about Russiagate. And unfortunately, that's where our media system works. So there's not a lot of accountability. Um, I noticed this back in 2003 with the weapons of mass destruction. Um, a lot of those people continue to have jobs in news media, even though they got that story wrong, it led to invasion of Iraq. Now, some of those very same people um, are Russiagators, and they continue to have a job, and there's just not a lot of accountability in in mass media.
2: One might conclude that's on purpose, because if you look at maybe 20 years ago, if there were major mistakes, and particularly repeat mistakes made by the same journalists over and over at major news organizations, I think you might have seen them fired or not welcome to work there anymore. But now, when this happens over and over again, the same journalists... Live to see another day. They make it promoted, and they're still given these high-profile spots.
0: Even yeah, when they um, you know, lose a position for causing some problem in media, or making them, let I me mean, back up. Even when they um, lose a job because they made a mistake or they did something wrong, like take like Chris Cuomo for example, he lands a job at News Nation. Um, almost immediately afterward. And and that's there's always that that uh, safety blanket there to help these folks out. I'm like Brian Stelter, who was wrong for years on CNN. Now he gets a job teaching about media and communication in Ivy League schools. So there's always this sort of safety mechanism for these folks. They rarely get held accountable.
2: But does that mean that it's on purpose, that the people who perpetuate the system actually are okay with the disinformation?
0: I think so. I think there's a a shared uh, elitism and class amongst people who work in media. Um, If you go back, like, say, 30 or 40 years ago, there was a lot more working class people, high school graduates, who got into news media, and they didn't rub shoulders with elites, and they were promoted for actually sticking it to elites in a lot of cases, right? This was the golden age of journalism in, in the 70s. Uh, But since then, it's really changed. Um, Once there was a golden age of journalism, these J schools started to expand. They started to hire people from elite J schools. And and I think these folks run in the same circles. They share the same narratives. And there's not a lot of challenging this information from within. And if they hear anything they don't like, um, they assume that it's, you know, fake news or acts of racism or sexism. They try and label it uh, as the most negative thing possible because they can't confront being wrong.
2: We look at, it's been now... Over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and at first we were told a lot of things, at least I was led to believe, people thought this was going to be over fast as long as Russia had the money to buy the stuff that they needed. Here we are today. What are some of your observations about that?
0: Uh, this is more of the same. History doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it resembles itself. Um, and how many times in our history have we been told that we're going to just enter this short war, it's going to be quick, it's got some admirable goals attached to it, this is based in altruism. Um, And then it ends up being a prolonged war where it gets more complicated, uh, raises larger questions, becomes more costly. And so to me, you you could throw this into Vietnam or Afghanistan. Um, It's more of the same from our foreign policy.
2: When we look at the Twitter files and social media in general, and the role that they played in concert with the media and public health officials during COVID, what do you think happened there? Was there this organized behind-the-scenes effort that manipulated virtually everything we were supposed to think?
0: Yeah, so social media platforms are always manipulated. There's never been this Wild West freedom of objectivity. At some level, they're, they're always managed. Uh, you can think of, like, when Facebook limited, uh, you'd only seen, like, 100 of your friends' posts. That's a decision Facebook makes that affects how you interact in the platform or the fact that there's just a like button. That affects how you're on the platform. But what we notice from the Twitter files is way more um, influence from outside actors, uh, political parties, both the Democrats and Republicans, of course, the government, um, members of industry like Big Pharma. And I, I think where part of this certainly comes from is um, we know that the government always worked with these tech companies. That's what Snowden revealed. We know politicians always rub shoulders with these tech companies. Chuck Schumer's daughter um, Work there, and a lot of Obama's team went to go work in Silicon Valley. But I think after the moral panic over fake news, these companies were afraid that for the first time they might lose some of their protections, particularly Section 230, right, the 26 words that invented the internet, uh, which protects these platforms for getting um, sued over the content that's on them. That's why we have social media. And I think they had a knee-jerk reaction that whoever was in power, they were going to listen to whatever those in power said, because that way they could keep their Section 230 protections. And so they worked with, you know, the Trump administration, a lot of meetings with Mark Zuckerberg and those folks until he was president. And the moment he realized he was not going to be president anymore, they flipped and they were on Team Biden. Um, and I think we'll see more of this um, as social media continues to cozy itself up to those in power.
2: The Biden administration had sort of a backfired effort to start some kind of department of disinformation, which was probably a bad idea, I think all sides consider. But isn't the government already performing some of those very acts, deciding what we should and shouldn't hear and spread around and talk about through these third parties, social media and media?
0: Absolutely. The the government's always uh, tried to quell any narratives that they disagree with. I mean, this is the whole story of the Cold War, right? Like when I was a young kid in history class, read about McCarthyism. It wasn't an aspirational tale. Um, But now it seems like some folks have read it as that. Um, they think we're in a unique time, and so we need to have um, unique mechanisms of, of censorship. Um, you know, a moment ago, you said that of all people across the aisle agree that this was a bad idea. Unfortunately, I think you're wrong. Um, there was a lot of support from the center that think that there are some views that we just need to, to censor, um, and we need big tech to do it. And I think it's, it's very dangerous. Um, I, did let, I did notice, though, that far... Far people on the far left and on the right did come together to oppose this board, and we're successful in putting some, some pressure on it. Um, but we know that these efforts continue. Um, showed some great reporting by The, the Intercept that show that the government's still working with these tech companies to do the same thing. They just don't have the DHS board anymore. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time.
2: I that talked about it or Nikki. But the whole idea of media literacy sounds like a great idea. But we, I think some of us noticed early on that that phrase was co opted. So, media literacy, instead of meaning think for yourself critically about what you're consuming in the media, was changed into this device that meant we'll tell you who to believe. And it's usually the traditional outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the networks. What's your view on? What are people to make of media literacy efforts when they hear about those today?
0: Yeah, media, media literacy has been weaponized as, as part of the, the war on disinformation, um, which in itself, you know, the term disinformation has also been weaponized. Um, we see this interesting trend where, where organizations and individuals who have a history of spreading disinformation are the ones who now want to lead the way to fight disinformation. So this is the United States government. Um, this is members of industry. This is folks in the mass media. Uh, these folks have been spotted time and time again, spreading disinformation, and now they want us to entrust them to, to combat it. Um, so you have to be careful when you say media literacy. I'm not talking about corporate media literacy or state media literacy. I'm talking about a classroom media literacy that empowers individuals to determine the veracity of content for themselves. They shouldn't depend on lists or outside actors or algorithms or browser extensions. Uh, those things put a lot of power in the hands of unaccountable actors. And then frankly, it's just undemocratic.
2: If we're on some sort of continuum when it comes to access to information, unfettered access to information, I would say in the beginning, the Internet provided quite a bit of fairly unfettered access. Yes, you went through a search engine and so on, but there's nobody telling you in general that you couldn't see stuff overtly. Where are we on that continuum today? Maybe we'll turn a corner and people will want to go press and go back to something that's less curated. Maybe they won't. But where do you think we are today with all of that?
0: Uh, we're certainly way far away from where we started in terms of um, the boundless access to information or the information superhighway, as they called it when I was a kid. Um, it's, it's way more managed now. I think uh, 9-11 had a lot to do with that. Um, the government was able to convince big tech to moderate content, to battle the war on terror, um, to stop terrorism. And we've seen that only expand um, into other groups that they deem a threat. And of course, the moral panic over fake news has expanded those efforts. The panic over pandemic misinformation has expanded those efforts. And the average user um, kind of has a delusion of power when they sit in front of their screen. They think they're being empowered to access all the information in the world and more than anybody in human history. It's really a whole managed, curated experience. Um these companies will tell you what you can and can't see. Um, I know this. I know this firsthand. Um, I teach news literacy, so one of the things I teach students to do is to find news articles from different funding sources and different ideologies. You can't do that on Google anymore. If you Google news any topic, they only give you legacy corporate media sources. But unless you know the other sources exist and go to them directly, Google will not send them to you. And that's one example of how managed and curated our experiences online.
2: What advice? do you give students? And what advice would you give Americans who really want to have a less controlled experience to be able to make up their own minds about information?
0: I think it's having some skepticism about too much power being in the hands of government and or industry is very helpful. Um, I would say, stop giving into this impulse to say, like, let's let government get rid of some information for us or let big tech do it. They seem like, you know, nice people in Silicon Valley. Um, they're not. This is really bad to empower these folks to determine which information we see. Uh, at a basic level, I think um, users would be wise to search out information from a multitude of sources, not just right versus left, but also corporate versus independent funded, you know, elitist versus populist media, try and get different views. Um, interrogate the sources that these people use, interrogate the journalists, make sure they have a history of being right. Um, interrogate the news source. Who is this outlet? Do they have a history of um, sending fake news? These kind of basic questions can be really helpful in making sure you don't become part of the fake news problem where you're spreading and believing fake news.
2: And then my last question is, is Substack a big player now and are there other things like it? Because I feel like almost any traditional news source you can go to, they've done some great reporting on some topics and they've pretty much all done some terrible reporting and been horribly wrong. But where else can people go besides these traditional outlets that we've turned to for so long?
0: Going to independent journalists, um, so folks who work outside of the mainstream can be really helpful, even if it's just to get different views. Um, I'm also very excited what's going on in new media right now. I think the podcast space and Substack space is um, pretty exciting. It has its challenges. You know, there's there's not editors and some of these folks may fall into the preaching of the choir problem. Um, but they do often get views and stories out that aren't, aren't covered elsewhere. So I think it, there's not a sort of magic bullet. Um, you want to use all these different kinds of sources to, to try and get as close as you can to the truth. I think that's the mo- the most responsible thing you can do in a democracy.
1: Wise words. And to see the interview with Nolan Higdon and catch more off-narrative, fair and accurate reporting on all kinds of topics you care about that too often are censored or slanted in the media, you can watch my TV program, Full Measure, this week, Sunday, April 23rd. By the way, our cover story is on that horrible train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. I felt like the news coverage along the way was a little hard to follow on that. It wasn't easy to get a good picture of what really happened or at least a good overview. And I thought it was also important to get an accurate picture of what's going on there now. So, we went to East Palestine to see for ourselves and we found a town that looks relatively normal but is nowhere near that in reality with residents skeptical of the government's story, worried about their health and the health of their children, and angry about the lack of specifics when it comes to possible compensation. I hope you'll check out my other podcast this week, the Cheryl Ackerson podcast. On that podcast, I give an update on my lawsuit against the government for its intrusions into my computers while I was a CBS News correspondent. And I also speak on a related topic with Congressman Thomas Massey about the new congressional committee that's supposed to be investigating the weaponization of our federal agencies. We have seen a lot of that. And now with Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives for the first time in a while, since January, they've started this new committee, modeling it, I guess, kind of after what was called the Church Committee, named after Senator Church in about 1975, looking into, ironically, the same type of thing. So we have really been battling abuses by our intel agencies for a very long time. And if you like the podcast, I hope you leave a great review and share it with your friends. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.